In the court of pop culture law, the sanctity of pop culture is represented by two separate yet equally important groups. The people who love a pop culture item a bit too much, and those who don't think it's all that great. These are their stories. Hello everybody, welcome to the latest podcast on the Three Angry Nerds Network, Culture Court. I'm your host Curtis, and to sort of give you an explainer as to what this podcast is about, Culture Court is us basically having two teams, a prosecution and the defense. So uh, the defense is going to bring a movie, TV show, music, book, some sort of pop culture item to the table. And it's up to the prosecution to essentially take it to pop culture court. And along the way, each team is going to be able to make a uh, point and the other team is going to be able to make a cross-examination or a rebuttal of the point. So for our inaugural episode, as our defense, we have Three Angry Nerds champion, lover of all Marvel and some DC, Carlos. Hello. And Carlos, what are you bringing to Pop Culture Court? I am bringing a defense of M. Night Shyamalan's 2004 film, The Village, to court today. And in the seat of the prosecution, we have Sir Philip Picklejuice Kirstner. <laughs> Why is that carrying over to another show? <laughs> Isn't that sort of the point, though? Like, the crossover is what gets people excited? I don't think anything pickle juice related gets anyone excited about anything. I'm just Let's do this. Now, like, Phil's going to open up his mailbox in like, the weeks to come and just get like jars of pickle juice and just be like, random. Um, so, yes, we're going to be discussing the village. Now, as the judge, I have seen the film, but I'm going to be completely impartial about this. I'm going entirely not off the film itself, but rather their arguments of it. I've only seen the film to have context for the things that they say. Uh, so with that, uh, let's into, uh, go into opening arguments. Uh, so we're going to start first with Carlos. Again, Carlos, you've brought uh, the village to the table here. So uh, in front of the judge, myself... Uh, our prosecution, Phil, and the jury, which would be our audience as a whole. What is your opening argument for The Village? Okay. So, M. Night Shyamalan's The Village is a movie that I personally feel has received a lot of undue vitriol over the years. It's a movie that has gone underappreciated for, well, basically ever since it first came out, um, largely because of issues not regarding the film itself, but regarding... Um, metatextual aspects of its existence, including the perception of Shyamalan's career during the time that it was released and the time after it was released, um, the marketing, and various other things that I'm going to examine in greater detail. I want to be making an argument for the village's strength as a cinematic narrative um, in terms of its construction, the way that Shyamalan has assembled the piece, and what he's really trying to bring to the table with it, which I don't feel has been given its proper due. And I'm going to illustrate that, again, using information from the film itself, information regarding the film's production and, and marketing and how it was brought to the table, and how I think we can reframe conversation about the village in order to try and rehabilitate um, its critical and audience reception. And that's basically what I'm going to achieve through, mm. my, uh, through my arguments about the film. Great, great. Okay. Now, uh, prosecution, Sir Philip Picklejuice Kirsner, please approach the stand. Um, 
please uh, give us your uh, rousing uh, opening statement for the village. Your Honor, Mr. Curtis. Look, my goal here today is a lot more simple. The village sucks. M. Night Shyamalan, he's often celebrated for his surprise twist endings today. And my two goals are, one, prove that he's not a good filmmaker and that his twists aren't interesting. And prove that The Village is not only one of his worst movies, but one of the worst movies made of all time. The only reason that we don't predict the twist that he has, by the way, is because there's literally no reason to. It doesn't make him a good filmmaker with these big elaborate twists to drop something on us that nobody saw coming because he didn't make the effort to lay any groundwork. The Village, if you haven't seen it, there's spoilers abound here in this episode, I'm sure. We might as well have zoomed out, and instead of seeing it was in real time, you know, modern day, he might as well just kept zooming and show that it was on the rings of Saturn. It's There's no clues, there's no context. You can pretend that there is, but there's not. It's lazy filmmaking with a surprise twist to do it. It would be the same as if I made a rom-com about two people falling in love. At the end of the movie, they both take off their masks, and it's Kramer from Seinfeld in a bowl of green jello. It's not a good twist to do something unexpected. All right. All right. So with that, we have our opening arguments. Now uh, we're going to start with the defense. They're going to give their uh, three points here. We'll start with uh, Carlos's first point here. So Carlos, are you ready? Yes. Okay. What's your first point you want to make here? Okay. So setting aside um, any conversation about, you know, the twists, um, which seems to be the framing argument for uh, the prosecution. I just want to talk about the village as a film, just and in what it is as constructed and what it is as it exists. Um, M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, I personally feel, is a misunderstood masterpiece that doesn't deserve the amount of contemporary vitriol it's received over the years, but I also understand that the fa that phrase, misunderstood masterpiece, is one that carries multiple negative connotations and misconceptions built into it. But it's a precisely of describing the village for my own personal purposes today because of several factors that are specific to this film, the way it was developed, marketed, and perceived. And from a purely technical standpoint, um, M. Night Shyamalan is an accomplished director with an excellent sense of cinematic language, but he's also someone who pioneers his own methods of relaying story that, if we're being honest, often have mixed results in terms of how they are received. Um, his work on The Village, I would argue, is among the best of his career, easily matching, if not exceeding, the work he's done on The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, Signs, and Split, all films that were very well received, if we're remembering. And while he did lose his way on films such as The Happening, After Earth, and Last Airbender, he's still an auteur, brings his personal stamp to his passion projects. And if you don't think he's an auteur, consider that his name is still being used on trailers to sell all of his projects, including Split this very year, which was a massive financial success, closing in on $300 million against a budget of $9 million. And consider the power of his name. Even with all the contempt is for him, no project aside from Lady in the Water debuted with less than $25 million box office. Um, Shyamalan's technical acumen as a filmmaker is on peak performance in the village, and stripping away all thematic considerations and also your own personal biases, his assembly of visual language, framing, set and costume design, fundamentals of character and world building, along with the incredible cinematography from Roger Deakins and Oscar-nominated musical score from James Newton Howard, um, contribute to a beautiful, atmospheric, precisely constructed and emotional experience that he is very carefully considered. 
Um, Shyamalan's direction of actors, which is one of his most common criticisms of him, is actually on his, he's probably on his best performance in that respect in The Village, with Bryce Dallas Howard and Joaquin Phoenix both delivering incredibly strong work here, along with, you know, great supporting cast that includes Adrian Brody, William Hurt, Brendan Gleeson, Sigourney Weaver, and everything that they're doing, while, again, it's up to the personal, you know, subjective in terms of how you feel about the performances, but it's all working towards his specific goal as a filmmaker, and again, on all of these technical aspects, the film really is operating on its A-game. So I don't really see how it can be considered one of the worst films ever when it's got so much going for it before we even start delving into what the movie is actually trying to do thematically. So starting off and just sort of saying, again, in terms of its technical aspects, The Village is doing a lot of things right. Great. All right. Sir Philip Picklejuice Kirstner. Oh, boy. Do you have a rebuttal for this? Do you want to cross-examine this point? So I go into, I, it seems like we have a very similar strategy here. My points are also categorized. Uh, I do have a technical acumen, technical standpoint point as well. So I don't want to give too much of that away now. I will say in the spirit of good faith, I agree with you that there is a good cast in this movie. Um, but I disagree that they're utilized in any sort of substantial way. So again, without taking too much of my own ammo out of my bag or this early in the game, I have no rebuttal to the technical point at this moment. All right. Well, uh, Carlos, uh, are you yes. ready for your second point? Yes, I am. Okay. Okay, so now I want to discuss the way that the village is perceived, again, in terms of its metatextual aspects. So discourse regarding the village almost always takes two forms, one of which it appears the defense, sorry, the prosecution is bringing today. Um, but I personally feel that both of these forms are disingenuous to the film in certain aspects. One, it's either vivisected as a case study for Shyamalan's alleged failures as a filmmaker and as a wider bullet point in the trajectory of his career, while almost never engaging with the film aside from the most cursory fashion. That is one that doesn't seem to be the one that the prosecution is going for. Two, which seems to be the one he's going for. Or as a surface level sadocritical takedown that is almost always centered on tearing the film to shreds for apparent storytelling infractions with regards to the film's central twists while almost never discussing the first two thirds of the film in any significant way. The reason that these two modes of discussing the village are so prevalent isn't because filmgoers are malicious, although some in the internet age are ready to slice any film to ribbons for random nitpicky nonsense for clicks, but that is a progenitor to that type of discussion, but because of metatextual factors that ruin the film's perception before the film had a chance to make a case for itself. There are two important factors to consider with the village's initially polarizing critical and audience reception. Those, number one, being Shyamalan's presence within the wider culture at the time of its release, and two, the truly god-awful marketing campaign for the film that cemented audience expectations that the film simply wasn't made to satisfy. In 2004, M. Night Shyamalan was on a career high after The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and Signs were all box office and critical successes, with him being referred to as the next Spielberg by film publications. The entire world's eyes were on him. However, he also wrote himself in something of a corner stylistically, because between his three widely known releases, his first two films, those being Praying with Anger and Wide Awake, are non-entities to the general audience. Um, he was well-established as a horror thriller director who always had a big twist at the end of his films. He had created a pattern of expectations with the audience, and this is something important to remember. Shyamalan himself has tried to combat this tendency of the audience to think of his films in only one fashion, saying that he does not believe and I quote, that all my movies have twist endings or that they're all scary. All my film movies are spiritual and all have an emotional perspective. His interest in the emotional truth of the human condition and the way spirituality informs his work is a more unifying theme of his films than genre distinctions or twist endings. 
even then when the village was released it's, it is understandable the audience had certain expectations for it especially when the marketing campaign was selling the film as another horror thriller with the trailers and posters putting heavy emphasis on the monsters and creeping atmosphere of the film and while those elements are present they are not the film's primary concern consider the film's main trailer which does not even feature ivy walker is the film the film's protagonist so it's completely selling the wrong movie Shyamalan himself has said that the biggest regret of his career was The Village's marketing campaign because it doesn't accurately represent the film he intended to make. I agree, because The Village, unlike his previous works, is not a horror film or a thriller. It is a love story. And that's what I will be discussing more in depth in the next one. Sounds good. All right, Sir Philip, Pickle Juice Kirstner. Do you have All right. <laughs> a do you want to cross-examine this point? Yes, yeah, so here's the thing. It there and I, I with all due respect because you have a mastery of the english language there was no i don't know what the point here was um so i just wrote down some of the words that you mentioned uh, marketing and twist being one love story being the other um the marketing campaign for this i'm gonna take your word for it and assume it was terrible i don't remember the commercials i don't remember the trailers I remember watching this movie and hating it. Defense. So that stands out in my mind. Defense, approach the bench. What, what did I do? Oh, sorry. Prosecution, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Step, 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 step. Okay. Uh, Sir Philip Pickle, just Kirstner. Um, I'm going to need you to call uh, your mother and ask her what the twist of the village was. All right. And what do I get if she knows it? You'll get you'll get some sort of points. Ooh. Or maybe not. We'll see. This is awkward. <laughs> she doesn't love me. Oh no. <laughs> this is how I find out I was adopted. Hi, it's Linda. Well, well, there you go. She doesn't even care enough about this movie to pick up the phone when her own son calls her. I think that says more. Now that's a damning accusation. <laughs> so, I okay. hope that satisfies. Okay, continue on with your point. So a marketing campaign does not make or break a movie. It makes or breaks the people who go see the movie, and I will concede that it does affect expectations when going in. Uh, however, nowadays, and look, I gave this movie as fair of a shot as possible. I've seen it twice in my life. One was opening weekend in the theaters, and one was on Thursday when I watched it for this. So it, I could not have given it a more fair shot. Did the marketing campaign from 2004 affect my enjoyment of the movie three days ago absolutely not a movie at a certain point has to break out from its own marketing campaign and it has to stand at its own thing and the village does not do that two if you say you don't want to be defined by twists in your movies stop putting twists in all your movies you are making movies that have twists regardless of if you want to or not it wouldn't be that hard if the village is a love story it wouldn't be that hard to just not put the modern day aspect in it it's the last five minutes of the movie. You could have just as easily cut it out. But Shyamalan wanted to do what Shyamalan do, and he put it in there. So I think for him to say he doesn't want to be defined by that, he's doing it to himself. 
Now, am I am I allowed to speak directly to that, or do I have to just continue with what I was going to do? You will have to keep silent for now, at least. But okay, you'll got have it. a choice Done. during the cross examination. So, Carlos, are you ready for your third and final point? Yes. Okay. Start. All right. Now, establishing the genre of the village as a love story is the single most important factor in re rehabilitating the film's perception because it completely shifts the expectations of what is trying to achieve as a narrative. Although there are monsters and horror elements in the village, and yes, there is technically a twist ending, although it does not operate in the same manner as Shyamalan's previous works, all of them, when framed in context, serve the more primary story of a growing romance between Ivy Walker and Lucius Hunt within the segregated community. All of the cinematic elements that Shyamalan introduces are not for the purpose of engaging the audience within the bounds of the thriller narrative. By trying to invest the audience in, uh, invest the audience in a story about love and the way it forms both between individuals and within the wider context of the community. Consider how many scenes develop the bond, not just between Ivy and Lucius, but between all the people of the village, many of them without much in the way of dialogue, instead establishing relationships with gestures, facial expressions, and subtle actions that develop the personalities of the people within the village, including our romantic leads, but also other characters such as the village elders, the mentally ill Noah, and Ivy's immature sister Kitty. The driving force of the narrative is Ivy Walker and how she reacts to the events that transpire around her and the information that is revealed to her. She is in love with Lucius, a concern that does not relate to the monsters until they become a threat, not to herself, but to him in the night attack sequence where she willingly puts herself in harm's way to hold out her hand while awaiting his return once he is stabbed by noah her concern is trying to find a way to save him again which is concerned not of personal survival but of love for another the film's pivotal scene which i would also argue is probably the finest moment of Shyamalan's entire career is the porch scene where ivy and lucius sit together on the porch staring at the mist ahead of them and that what stands in is for a metaphor for the uncertain future that they may have and frames both their faces at the edges of the frame here through dialogue laden both with, with sweet inflection and internal logic to their choice of words i won't tell you your color being said in a playful manner being something that makes sense purely within the film's world we see lucius finally breaking down and being open with his feelings something he's been terrified to do up until this point and ivy being firm in her convictions blatantly stating that they will be married despite knowing that their future is indeed uncertain not just from the threat of the monsters as they understand it but in an existential sense regarding the inability to calculate the future yet both still have the courage to affirm their love for each other despite this the fear of the future and the desire to calculate is one that pervades the village itself because along with love it is a motivating factor for the village's creation in the first place the village's elders are revealed at the end to be deceivers, not just creating the monsters, but also creating the village as a segregated community in the modern era because of their shared trauma from losing loved ones in the contemporary world, a trauma they've shifted not onto the facts of everyday life, but the lies, deluding themselves into believing they can engineer a place where no evil happens. They don't do this out of malice, but out of love, love for their families, for their children, for each other, and at their core, their intentions are no, but also horrifically flawed because they have no tangible sense of reality, which wrecks havoc on their community in ways they did not intend. They're focused on spirituality and the alleged security that comes from isolation, absconding, from technological process has resulted in Ivy not being able to be cured of her blindness, of Noah not receiving the therapy he needs for his mental instability, and for the elders to be chained to their trauma, and they've caused this anachronism that shows through broken, hybrid of antiquated modern English dialects, hodgepodge of influences on the village's clothing and architecture, and a profound sense of melancholia and depression that's across the whole film. The village is a treatise on the value of love and the actions we choose to undertake because of it. Love in itself is pure, and but what we do in pursuit of it is horrifying <laughs> implications. All right. And are you, did you want to counter that, sir? Yes. Phil? So he, look, he said everything that's wrong with this movie, but pretended that it was good stuff. So framing this as a love story is fine. I'll, I'll give you that if that's what you want to do about it. But nothing, there's no interaction or chemistry between these main characters or anything in this movie outside of the love story or the whole plot as a whole. That is anything other than every main cinema cliche. Not being able to predict the future and where it goes. 
get in line, buddy. Nobody can. Uh, the elders doing something wrong out of love for their village happens every time. The mist as a metaphor for the uncertainty of life happens in every movie up into including Stephen King's The Mist. Thank you very much, which did a little bit better. Um, and being able the having colors, the blind woman that has some sort of weird synesthesia or, or something it, is in there only to add to these lines. Right. If you I feel like it's an it, inability to write a blind character that you have to add this plot point. I can't I can't see his color anymore. I won't tell you your color. There's no reason for this to be in here other than Shyamalan isn't confident in his abilities to write a good blind character. So he has to give her some sort of sight. Yes, it's not an outline of a sight like I'm it's not Daredevil, but knowing that people are in buildings because you can see the color from outside of them is taking the blindness away from this character and it's making her no longer unique in her disability, but instead, you know, giving it bonus powers to make it seem interesting to us because he doesn't feel like we are competent as film watchers to enjoy a blind character in a movie. So I don't find this love story charming. I don't find the elders caring for their village to be with any kind of, you know, truth or pragmality in this. I, I don't think that this movie is anything other than the five or six cliches that you just named in your last point. All right. So with that... You now have the floor, uh, prosecution. Do you are you ready to make your first point? I am ready, sir. Okay, go ahead. So I will go technical first because uh, my esteemed opponent did as well. Um, I have a slightly different viewpoint here. So the most obvious technical gap here is that there are certain scenes in this movie that are obviously filmed after the movie was completed on a completely separate camera. They're on a handheld camera. They're significantly blurrier and grainier. They're incredibly shaky. And the ADR on these scenes is of a much lower quality. You can actually hear it coming through speakers as opposed to coming through your television speakers. There is such a strong, difference in visual quality between these two scenes that it is jarring and there is no amount of anything anyone can say that makes me think this is intentional having said that the cinematography and things like that these are all just cheap self-indulgent grabs at trying to create a visually striking image showing her in a field in the yellow jacket with red flowers on the ground has no bearing on the plot or on the audience or anyone other than to make an interesting image that would look good on a screen cap or good on a wallpaper. And the movie is full of these. After Lucius gets stabbed, the camera pans down and over and points at what I assume is a small furnace, and it's looking to, through two or three stairs. It lingers there for three, four minutes almost, it seems. It's not really. It's about 15 seconds. No reason for that to happen. It has no bearing on the story again. And then it cuts to an empty rocking chair in the field using your standard, typical third, you know, scenes of thirds with the rocking chair on the right. Again, there are things that people are going to, they're hoping people are going to take to be artsy, but they're not. It's, it's frivolousness in camera work. It's, it's self-indulgence, as I said, and trying to frame a scene to make it have more impact than it actually does. Okay. Now, uh, defense, are you ready to counter this? Or do you want yeah, to? I want to talk about this a okay. little bit. Um, it seems that uh, the prosecution has pretty much conceded to 
again, most of what I was trying to get across with the technical aspects, focusing purely on um, apparent, again, as discussed by him, failures in cinematography. Um, something about the cameras changing between scenes. Um, one thing is that I would like to know, again, what specific, because he didn't really, he was talking about specific scenes in terms of what he thought were apparently failing artsy images. But again, the choice of camera, I'm sort of questioning the with relevancy of that overall point being, again, the specific scenes that where that apparently was going to happen did not, was not made clear. And also because I don't really see how that had any significant effect on the film itself. It just seemed to be something that he noticed and was like, oh, that's a fun bit of trivia. Let me throw that in. So I, I didn't really see the, the relevance in that particular point. And to go back to the whole thing about, again, apparent uses of artsy imagery. Um, well, I mean, we already know that the cinematography in this movie basically speaks for itself in terms of what it's able to accomplish with all of its various images. And I mean, if you don't like the shot of the furnace, <laughs> well, that's fine. Um, but there are plenty of shots of, again, all these characters within this space, again, of the space itself, of the sense of um, geography, of this sense of atmosphere, of this sense of world building that cinematography does go ahead and achieve. So, again, a few throwaway shots of some random things you don't like. Sure. Does that mean the whole film is trash? I really don't think so. Okay. Now. Pickle juice, Kirstner, are you ready to for your second point? Yes. So second point is, and by the way, not to say that any specific scene speaks for or of itself. It is mainly points to show the overall incompetence as a director. So don't focus too much on the literal things that I'm saying, more so that his abilities as a director is subpar. So point number two is going to be direction and acting. Um, again, I tried to give this a fair shot, watched it on Thursday. The night before, I watched The Room with Tommy Wiseau, uh, and I fully and wholeheartedly believe that we have better acting, better writing, and a more interesting plot twist at the end of that movie. Uh, it, to me, seems like M. Night Shyamalan is a robot that doesn't understand human emotion, and that's why he can't get any of it out of any of his actors. So Carlos mentioned, and I agreed to, the cast here is great. You've got your Adrian Brody, you got Bryce Dallas Howard, who I'm in love with, but somehow this movie makes her look unattractive. You've got Judy Greer, Joaquin Phoenix, uh, Sigourney Weaver, as he said. These are great people that have been great in so many things, but their performances are so bad, and the direction I find to be so lazy. You can pretend, again, that this is an intentional way of making all of the actors sound flat and delivering their lines with no emphasis because this is the world that we're building. But it comes across like a bunch of high school kids trying to write a horror movie in the style of Wes Anderson. Nobody is actually trying to emote, even in the scene when Judy Greer is under, going in the trap door under the house when the monsters are coming. There is zero emotion in the scene. She gets a little bit louder, but she doesn't show the range of emotion that Judy Greer has. Holding her hand out to save the guy when the monster is coming should have had more of an emotional impact, but the actors are just so stilted in their performances that it doesn't get anything out of me personally as a viewer. And this is a problem that I see with Shyamalan in all of his movies, but specific to the village, this was a waste of several very talented actors. Okay. And, uh, Carlos, are you ready to cross examine that point? Yes. Okay. So he, um, 
the prosecution has basically said that you know there's no there's basically no acting there's no acting worth praising in this film and he's blaming that uh, failure on Shyamalan as an actor director um, which I find a little bit interesting considering that he was talking earlier about um, the writing of the blind character in Bryce Dallas Howard's Ivy Walker, which, again, is something that I find a little bit fascinating um, to bring up when he didn't talk at all about the fact that she is able to um, convey so much of her performance through her gestures, her facial expressions, and to go back to the specific scene that he referenced, um, he was talking about um, Judy Greer's character Kitty in the scene during the night attack. Why aren't we talking about um, Bryce Dall- everything that Bryce Dallas Howard is doing with her face in that scene? Everything that she's doing um, with her expressions and her gestures during the porch scene? Everything that she's doing when, I mean, you look at this character who is blind, right? And she is conveying that this character lost her sight so long ago because her expressions are so much more pronounced and so much more naturalistic and not reserved in comparison to a lot of the other characters you know, who have their sight and are so reserved. And now you can say, well, maybe Shyamalan didn't do that. Maybe that's just her doing it of her own volition. But it definitely all made it into the film. And it really made that character so much more engaging than the prosecution's probably giving her credit for. Well, I wouldn't agree. And wait, feel wait, free to... Hey, he doesn't have... He doesn't get to respond. <laughs> feel free to use this included in my three minutes. But I would agree... I would disagree in the facial expressions. I think you have characters like Charlie Cox and Daredevil or even all the way back to the Miracle Worker. These are people that can actively portray facial expressions in a way that is more interesting and more deep than Bryce Dallas Howard can do. So that being said, my third point here uh, answers... Wait, is is, uh, Carlos done? I was... I I guess I was done, yeah. Sounds good. Defense, can you approach the bench? Uh Uh-oh, here we go. Oh, I'm not defense. See you later, suckers. Defense, can you please approach the bench? Okay. Dun, I, dun, dun. I need you to name for me one other movie where Joaquin Phoenix gets stabbed. Where what? Yeah, one other movie where Joaquin Phoenix gets stabbed. Objection relevancy. Uh, I need to know how many times Joaquin Phoenix gets stabbed in movies. In his entire filmography? Yeah. No, just you just have to name one time, other time he's been stabbed in a movie. And name the movie. Uh, wait, he was stabbed in Gladiator. Okay, please return back to your bench. Thank you. <laughs> okay, yeah, I was gonna say I would. Hope I was so. like, I was like, no, because I was just so stunned by the question. I'm like, wait, I didn't know that that was part of the process. But I'm like, wait, no, yeah, he's stabbed in Gladiator. Okay, thank you mm. so much. All right, okay. Uh, prosecution, three. you have your yes. third and final point. Are you ready? Yes, I am ready. Okay. So point three answers the time old question that was first proposed to us in the full house intro. Whatever happened to predictability? So the village, this is twist aside, modern day stuff aside. This is strictly on a filmmaking plot point perspective. So there are multiple significant plot points in this movie and I'm, not going to go into how the first five, six minutes of the movie are wasted and how there's other time wasted in between them. But here's what's interesting. The first major plot point in this movie happens about 13 minutes in. This is where she confesses her love for Lucius in front of him and everyone, and it's this whole big, quote, emotional scene. Now, that's 13 minutes in. Exactly 20 minutes in 
exactly 20 minute intervals is every plot point. At 33 minutes, the monster attacks the village. At 53 minutes, Lucius gets stabbed. At 73 minutes, we find out that the monsters are just costumes. This is our first plot twist. So now to increase tension, we've made every plot point in the 10 movie, 10 minute increments. So at 83 minutes, she sees the monster again. At 93 minutes, we find out where the idea came from. And we find out that it's, you know, modern day era, etc. At 103 minutes, this is where we see a picture of Lucius in the closing credits to say, oh, did he live or did he die? Remember to keep thinking about this. And then the movie ends. It is by paint by numbers, connect the dots, incremental formulaic movie making where literally to the minute you can pinpoint specific and important plot points to the movie. And I did not just pick these out to make my point. These are the main pain points. And if you want to argue that these are not the main plot points, I'm open to that. But that is every 20 minutes and then exactly halfway through the movie, every 10 minutes after we see the first twist. Okay. Now, Defense, are you ready? Or do you want to uh, cross-examine that point? Yeah. Okay. Um... I, there was a there was a point when I was um, discussing earlier where the uh, prosecution said that you know he didn't really see the point that I was making, which is fine. He doesn't have to. Um, I think that I'm having the same uh, feeling right now. Um, it seemed to be about predictability. That's what he was. What the word that he used. Um, I like to think of it more as uh, structure. Um, again, if you can look at a time stamp rather than, you know, trying to be absorbed into the experience, sure. Um, but I find it sort of interesting that, again, while the film does get through those points, and those are important points to get through because they are all being laid out in a fairly methodical manner by Shyamalan, um, but I'm sort of wondering, well, I mean, every film has plot points that are laid out in a fairly methodical manner for the most part because that's how films are structured. Um, so I really don't see how that is somehow, again, if you feel that it's a little bit too predictable, a little bit too on the nose time-wise, sure, that's fine. But to somehow get that, take, get from there to a point where it's, this is one of the worst films ever made, which is what you said you were going to prove originally, and I don't think you have, um, it makes your initial statement incredibly hyperbolic, and it does not feel as if this point has been as considered as it probably should have been. Well, to be fair, the only way for me to prove that this is the worst movie ever is if we had a spare hour and 43 minutes, we could just watch it. But the point that I'm trying to make here <laughs> is that there's two kinds of structure. There's organic versus manufactured structure. And I think a good Your Honor, movie... why is he getting extra time that Project I was not off? Sustained. Sit down, uh, prosecution. You said hey, no one stopped me. I figured I'd try. <laughs> Okay, with that, okay, prosecution, you can you can stand back up now. You, you can, okay, thank you. You can do your uh, closing argument, please. I was getting a blood clot. <laughs> your Honor, organic versus manufactured structure. Mm. I just wanted to finish my sentence before. Uh, this movie, look, it's all up for interpretation. It's all up for opinion. And at the end of the day, we know that. To me, this movie's terrible. Uh, when the credits, the closing credits roll. The first build, the first build in the credits is the violin player. I feel like I don't have to say any more, but I'm going to. So 
This is a poorly acted horror charade with lazy and uninspired twists, and I don't want to beat too much on the twist because I think the rest of the movie is equally as bad. But when you watch this movie with the twist in mind, this is what really shatters the illusion for me and takes me out of it. I'm all about the rewatchability. If you watch this movie with the twist in mind, this is just a movie about grown-ups playing dress-up in the woods. This is a movie about LARPing, and this is a movie that takes itself way too seriously for fundamentally what it is is a bunch of grown-ups pretending that they're in old times and today times it's uninspired it's boring it's poor performances the cinematography is not good i'm sorry the score and the violin player sure good job but this isn't a soundtrack i'm listening to at the gym and i don't dislike m night Shyamalan. i think the sixth sense is fine i think unbreakable is fine i don't think that this movie is a good representation of his filmography and i don't think this movie is a good representation of the horror genre the love story genre the twist genre or any other kind of genre that you can put it in it is so unremarkable in every way okay i rest my case thank you okay and uh defense are you ready for your closing argument okay i will say i find it kind of funny when you were uh making fun of the violin player for being at the in the credits at the start of the credits when again that score was nominated for an oscar but we'll set that aside um the elders created this village because of a desire to protect what they love but only by manipulating their children what they believe in and closing them off from the entire outside world with their faith and what they're doing being the only thing holding them together aside from their love the village is based on lies deception manipulation the elders are vindicated if not necessarily absolved of sin because their insular community did foster the creation of a pure love in the form of ivy's love for lucius which is what i was talking about this is a love story a love so powerful and selfless that when a woman with no sight is willing to venture into the uncertainty the unknown the beyond of the world she never truly realizes is a lie to save him because you know we find out through the again awful the awful as you say twist ending but she does not um, this is a film that shows how the constructs of our society, flaws and all, carry both our greatest dreams and what eventually may lead to our doom. And although Ivy's world is one of lies, including the lies of the monsters, her faith in the community has created a love which for her is truth, emotional truth, which is what Shyamalan was trying to achieve in this film. And what I personally believe, unlike what you say, is something that he found, even if it's not something that you did. Okay. You both made great arguments. I feel like I can understand where you're both coming from. It's time for a verdict. Are you guys both prepared? Yep. Okay. I can see where Carlos is coming from. The movie on its own is not... We're not judging the movie based on its marketing material or how it relates to other Shyamalan movies. We're looking purely at the movie itself. Uh, now... When we're looking at the movie as a, on its own, I can understand your points. You know, the film, the cinematography is 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 what it is. It's very interesting, very colorful and dynamic. Uh, the cast is great, uh, and you know, the plot and all that stuff is relatively interesting. I don't know if I would agree with you that it is as mesmerizing and spellbinding as you make it to be, but I do th agree with you that those are relatively strong points. I don't put so much weight into it as you would, but I can agree where you're going with that. Now, that being said, I can see where Phil's coming from as well, where this movie does have flaws. Uh, there is certain scenes and, you know, certain points that sort of take me out of the immersion of the film. At the end of the day, though, I don't think those moments 
outweigh the good of this movie and ultimately I'm going to have to say that the defense has won this case. Thank you, Your Honor. You're welcome. I'm going to blow this courtroom <laughs> sky high. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you for tuning in for the first episode of Culture Court. What did you think of The Village? Email us at threeingrenerdspodcast at gmail.com. Culture Court in the subject line. Let us know what you thought of The Village. Uh, you can also rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play, which will be up you know, hopefully in the days uh, to come. So if they're not right away, check uh, shortly. They should be up soon enough. Uh, we don't know when the next episode will be or who will be on, but I think that's part of the charm. Uh, maybe you have a suggestion for who you'd like to see on. Let us know at 3 at gmail.com. With that, thank you, the defense. Thank you, prosecution. And with that, we rest our case. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.